0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys, as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve and Play podcast. This week we have a really special episode for you. We have a conversation with both John Verveke and Nick Winkleman. So this is the first time that we are going to have multiple guests on the podcast at the same time, and I couldn't think of two thinkers I would enjoy more having such a conversation with. So through this podcast, we actually ended up introducing uh, Nick to John's work, and they've gone and recorded a couple of episodes on John's podcast and have had a really great uh, interaction you know a lot of interesting stuff has come out of the meaning of Nick's work in thinking about the importance of communication and how communication works in the mind of the person receiving that communication um, which has an athletic you know has an athletic output but also we can think of this as having much more widespread implications and this ties really deeply into Reiki's work in cognitive science and then this overarching question of how we deal with meaning. And that's part of what came up in one of their conversations and where they started to talk a little bit about the role of shamanism. And um, that overarching conversation, that in particular sort of started me thinking about my own background of having kind of grown up within um, a attempt to recreate aspects of local um, Northwest, religious traditions, uh, Native American religious traditions, and I shared a little bit about that with John and Nick, and they were very interested and wanted to have a, a deeper dialogue. So it actually takes quite a while for us to get to that aspect of the conversation. Uh, we get started, and it just gets really interesting um, right away. There's just a ton of amazing intersections between Nick's work and John's work and my own work, and so it was very easy for us to talk and, and create, I think, a lot of wonderful um, insights. And in. so I think you guys are going to get a ton out of it. If you're a big fan of what we're doing on the podcast, this is definitely going to be one of the, the most insight laden podcasts. And I look forward to future conversations with John and Nick, as well as bringing on other guests to, to interact with us. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Nick Winkleman and John Reiki. Uh, so guys, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast and uh, Voices with Reiki. Um, I, I guess it's going to be a, a dual episode. Yeah, for sure. Um, Nick and John, it's always a pleasure to connect with you guys. Um, it's been so good Absolutely. getting back in regular conversation with both of you, um, and I just I really enjoyed your last uh, conversation together. I thought it was incredibly insight generating, and it makes me really excited. You know, I had this sense that that in the sense I don't know what we want to call it. I, I I'm starting to think of it as the sense making community. Maybe that's the best term yeah. for this world. Yeah. Um. And I, I get so excited about hearing, you know, your conversations with Jordan Hall or you know Daniel Schmachtenberger over on Rebel Wisdom or Jordan Peterson, whatever he's doing. Um, but I always feel like there, there, there's not enough representation of the body, right? Mm, it's like yeah. I feel yeah. like we need to go deeper into the body, and I think that this format of talking heads on Zoom, in some sense, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> We are, we are constrained to play the game of propositions or at least play the game at the propositional level primarily, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we can, we can tap into the perspectival here, right? That's, I think that's what you're aimed at with the idea of dialogos, right? John is yeah, through this proposition juggling with the right emotional frame, that something that affects us at the perspectival and participatory level starts to generate.
1: Yeah, for sure, and that's, I think that's the deep connection, I mean, the deep calling I'm hearing from Nick's work, yeah. uh, because I think, I mean, I'm more and more thinking about um, how do, we, I like the way you're putting this, by the way, I think it's very fortuitous, how we play at the propositional level, so that we properly access, activate, and accentuate the perspectival and participatory, and I think that's where Nick's work on embodied, enacted analogy, and metaphor, uh, just I, I, see, I think it sits right there, yeah. um, and, and, I, and I think it's, and I think it's doing a lot. You guys may know that I, I distinguish between the language of training and the language of explaining. And I yeah. see what Nick is doing is, I mean, and I mean this in a very complimentary way because I don't hold these ads like this is the good one and this is sort of the 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 the, 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 the country cousin or something like that, right? That's I'm not that's not my thinking, right? Uh, because I think what what Nick does, he talks about it and he points us to the language of training, but in a way that affords the theoretical reflection upon it and the language of explaining. Um, So I I see his work as uh, particularly pivotal uh, when we are, I guess this sounds very Gnostic, when we are trapped in this environment that we're trapped in, (laughs) pushing the screen. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and so um, I'm very interested, but I'm I'm also interested in the reverse. Uh, And that's something I want to sort of bring up Uh, to to put in uh, Nick's ball court. Um, I'm interested in the reverse. I'm interested in not only use, so in deep learning you generate in order to recognize. So, right, we're practicing, right? Doing a lot of the generation that Nick's doing, but I'm wondering if also the reverse. So maybe I can put up sort of as a Socratic question. How does the practice of the language of coaching help us to discover within our own something like this, within our gestures, in our intonations, how does it help us disclose implicit enacted metaphors? Instead of the other where we're trying to find, right, the Mm -hmm. the metaphor and say, this will help you with this endeavor. I get that, and it's powerful, but it seems to me that it at least implicitly requires this other skill that I would like to try and make a little bit more focal. How can we use this? Like, look, I'm doing this with my hands right now. Why am I doing, why am I shaping a ball, right? What's going on there? Why am I rolling my, right? And like, how can we use it to look backwards, to reflect backwards into the propositional play so that we can more explicate the implicit analogies and metaphors we're already using? Does that make sense as a question?
2: For, for me, it, it's 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 close to making sense. I have a, a <laughs> sense of what you're after. Um, okay. it, it's not it's not crystal clear, but I think that's maybe it, it <laughs> will become uh, it, it'll become brighter as as we discuss. So let me just take the thread there and share a, a few different things that um, come to mind. First, as we discussed last time on on Voices with Ravakey, this idea of uh kind of you know language of of explaining versus language of training. I think in that discussion, I, at least in the way I'm currently discussing of it, discussing it, is talking about language relating to imparting knowledge of what to do yeah. versus language being used to impart knowledge of how to do it.
1: Yes. And, yes. I, and uh-huh. I draw
2: and I draw that back to the experience, I think anyone who deals in the movement space, uh, has dealt with at some point or another, both of you, th- this is true for, and that is a person either on their own reflections or when dealing with a coach saying, I know what to do. They can even identify it on a video, yep. right? They can even explain it relative yep. to themselves. Yep. I need to be able to do X, Y, and Z. I just don't know how to do it. And right, that's that whole difference between you know declarative and, and procedural yep. or, or propositional versus participatory, being able to express yep. it in a physical medium. And so so right then and there, I think insofar as as language as an output to change physicality, we recognize that there does seem to be these two knowledge forms in the way they show up in our language, uh, recognizing that it is not enough just to explain, you know, declaratively step-by-step, this is what happens, but rather there's another way to use language that allows them to access the the gestalt of what we're saying that the whole body within a unified common goal outcome of of achieving and that's kind of this knowledge of how and this is where analogy or or enacted analogy as we've been saying becomes so important now i'll just I'll, i'll pause there that was the the first thought just to put your words into my own insofar as as the reversing how does the analogy creation process in a way implicitly inform the analogy creation process and you and i even last time talked about physical gesture yeah, i think that yes. was in a way how we how we got on to shamanism and how people used to literally yep. act yep. out the behavior yes. of the animals that they were trying to 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 uh, to, yes. to track yes. and that i think we even talked about you know children and how this ability to to mirror and mold at a young age is almost a way we absorb the physical offerings of the world around us. And and that analogy, just like, you know, we move before we can talk about movement. There's almost this physical manifestation of analogy in gesture in our body before it ever gets verbalized. And so what's really interesting, and this is going to sound completely tangential, but I think it relates to what we're talking about. And then I'll pause Um, over the last Over the last five years, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of interviewing for for people that want to be strength and conditioning coaches. Now, I don't think there's anything unique about interviewing to be a strength and conditioning coach, uh, but I do think that what I'm going to share is probably in, in some ways more generalizable beyond it. And that is when you look at the people who tend to best represent themselves, get the jobs and have success compared to those who don't there seems to be a very big difference in what we're getting at here, John, around expressiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the ability to have your tone and body language be on parallel with what you are propositionally saying, such that the verbal and what we traditionally call nonverbal, the physical manifestation of the meaning behind your words that those are in some way in sync, if I can use that phrase. And what I find is people who come across as more authentic, at times clearer in their own thought process and ultimately are more likely to get a position in my own experience, those two things seem to be in parallel. And when you provide feedback to someone where you say, ultimately your nonverbal betrays your verbal, there's, some. I can't shake it. I'm seeing this in human behavior more and more and more and that we're seeing people that are very good in this medium even when it's live face to face propositionally what they say sounds correct, sounds good, but there's all this other physical medium around that that it appears to be to be missing. If I can yeah. uh, analogize yeah. this to a DJ board, right? It's like they have the, the low but then, you know, the, the, the medium and the highs are turned all the way down. You're missing some of those overall richness of the notes. And so I'm gonna leave that there to, to marinate, but what it comes back to is this physical manifestation in meaning needs to be on par for me with what we're saying. And I know when I'm coaching, I am acting out physically well before the words ever come out of my mouth. And so I think that's starting to get out what you're talking about, John.
1: Well, so
0: can if I, I can, I'd like to, I'd like to, yeah. to grab this because there's something I wanted to reflect from what you said John and then I, I want to connect it and then connect it to the overall arching conversation here but so what I heard in what you said John had to do with this idea that so we can understand we can understand what someone needs to do in order to accomplish a task and then we can understand how we have to communicate with them or how they have to, direct their attention what their what needs to sort of what their imaginal needs to be in order right. to accomplish that task but what i heard you say was that once we understand that imaginal once we understand that focus of attention that actually is now a lens into a different and deeper understanding of the self right yes. that we can reverse the focus from from what the cue tells us about how we accomplish a task what the cue tells us about what the human being is who accomplishes the task and this affords us insight generation for a broader project and this is where we link what nick is doing in what i'm doing um to this broader uh this broader sense making uh wisdom generation you know integration and and to to pick up on what you said nick what i heard is this this sense that that a lot of people are suffering from a lack of integration at these levels, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reminding uh, of Peterson's idea, of first don't lie, right? And I think part of this is, um, is that people, people, people may be, not exactly lying, but let's say, um, not completely honestly representing themselves because the ideas haven't penetrated below the propositional level. So you can replicate an idea And an idea can replicate say through you propositionally, but it doesn't feel authentic until you have experienced it and adopted it deep inside you. And you as someone who's recruiting a coach, you don't want to hire somebody who has a propositional understanding of strength and conditioning, but doesn't show that it's integrated on a deeper level that's actually gonna allow them to effectively communicate and change an athlete's behavior.
1: 100%. So yeah, I think you understood me perfectly, right? Could I could I riff on that and then maybe integrate back with what Nick said?
0: Yeah, I, can I just finish one thing cuz it, it oh, sorry. finishes my sorry. it finishes my theme here, which is that the 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 maybe the the fundamental thing that makes me excited about this conversation in some sense is like I came into this you know, and since I'm, I got my, my, my boost up into the sense-making world when, when I had my first conversation with you, John, right. But I feel like in some ways I'm the sole really deep representative of the body right now in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And so to have Nick come in and take a deep interest in it and be able to articulate all the insights he has from his work, it's like, oh, wow. And then to hear you integrating the insights in your conversation with someone like Greg Henriquez, all right, that, that's really exciting to me. And so I'm, I think that that what we're getting at here is that we we have to take our sense making all the way back into the body. Like I had this idea recently that we often say we need to have a conversation about some issue as if conversation alone is going to fix the issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's more like we need to build a culture from the body up to become good at the culture generation. So I'll, I'll stop there and let you, and let you take the reins, John no, hopefully that, no, no, that, that doesn't disrupt you.
1: So, no no, it's not. Uh, let me just try and keep all these because these are so, wow he was like <laughs> wow <laughs> um, okay so first of all let's let's, uh, let's I just want to put it on the table to put a pin in it because I want to come back to this so uh, I want to, I want to, one of the things I hear you saying, Raven, right, it's something that I've been talking a lot about at the logos is there's two things, there's two directions sort of where we can talk about embodiment. One is like our physiological embodiment, but there's also the way in which we, and this is the platonic notion, in a participatory fashion, we can embody something around us. We can embody like there, so there is something forming between all these discussions that I'm not the author of, you're not the author of, Nick's not, Greg isn't. There's a logos there and that logos is taking shape. And part of what we wanna do is not only, you understand, not only embody John Verveke, but embody the logos and get, in fact, figure out how to get those two embodiments in resonance with each other. That's the first thing I wanted to say. And then it goes back to the point where you, I think you understood me better than I did. (laughs) Because what, what what but that's exactly right. I wanna know how the imaginal without and the imaginal within can enter into anagoguery. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? This process of yes, I get better at sort of seeing it and realizing it, and it's imaginal. It's not imaginary. It's imaginal, and, I, and I'm really interested in in uh, and, in shamanism about that because I think of shamanism as um, I think I've been talking to you about this, right? sort of the this something like the imaginal augmentation of reality, like augmented reality. We use we we it's perspicacious projection that actually enhances our ability to see things we're where otherwise not seeing, realize things we're otherwise not realizing. And I, and I think Nick actually exemplifies that a lot. He looks through these analogies and sees deeply into the person and he, allows, he affords them to do that. The reason why I'm concerned about the anagoga and, and that use of the, the imaginal without being in resonance with the imaginal within is both because of the, the two directions of embodiment and secondly, because the thing that Nick was talking about is general, which he foresaw. So all of therapy, I'm going to be really bold here, all of therapy is based on this. This People come in propositionally knowing what the issue is. And they're incapable of realizing the transformation that is needed. So that's my proposal uh, to think about how this generalizes. Uh, that doesn't mean that everything's therapeutic, but you understand what I'm trying to get at. And here's how I can generalize the therapeutic. Sorry, I'm trying to stitch this all together. I feel like Hermes is r- weaving things as fast <laughs> as I can here, right? Um, and that's this, this notion, right? Because the perspectival carries with it the realness of presence. And you guys are describing the lack of integration within that leads to a uh, loss of that sense of presence. The person can be saying all the right things, but the authenticity is missing. There's a good way of understanding that, and it comes out of philosophy. And then let me give you an example, because uh, uh, Rafe, you, you you actually invoked Dawkins and the memes, right, and the replicating ideas. And I remember going uh, watching this, and here's Richard Dawkins talking about how religion is defunct and it's not important. And then people line up, and they so he will sign their book and shake yeah. <laughs> his hand. And I'm thinking, wow, what up? And this is the term for it: what a performative contradiction. You're saying, and you're, you're sincere. There's, I, I'm not accusing him of fraud or lying, but the, the propositional stuff is not aligned with what's actu- what he's actually embodying and enacting and how people are relating to him. And so I think a lot of people, um, like a lot of people are unaware of performative contradiction. Uh, and, and I'll say one more thing about this. This is the research from uh uh from golden meadow Uh, that's her last name sorry (laughs) Uh, on gesture and she'll and she notes that when kids are trying to learn for example math they'll be saying one thing with their propositions but which was incorrect but they'll be doing like balancing an equation and they'll say oh you go from all the way to the right and you end up on the you go all the way from the left and you end up on the right that's wrong they'll be saying that but they'll be doing this with their hand so the gesture contains the right ant. So there's what she calls a mismatch. It's a performative contradiction. And she said, those are the children that are actually on the verge of insight. So this is a Socratic thing I'm trying to do here. Detecting performative contradiction and getting people to reflect on it could actually in a Socratic fashion trigger people for, the kind, for a Socratic kind of insight in which they're starting to get an internal alignment that affords them being more present to what's going on. So there, I said enough. That was I tried to. That was my attempt to keep the jazz going. So
0: mm. I'm just going to sort of direct this question to Nick. Um, if what you're describing there, if we could bring it down to the level of the body, and we can say that if you ask an athlete to describe the way that they're moving and accomplishing something, and then you can show them that the description is 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 in contradiction to the behavior, mm. is your prediction. That the athlete will then ha- essentially be able to better organize and understand how the performance works by recognizing that performative uh, prediction. So I'm I'm curious how that lands for you, Nick.
2: Um. Well, le- let me let me see if I can. You you tell me if I've given some level of insight to that question by taking possibly a slightly different route to to answer it. And I as I think I've expressed to both of you, I feel the, the secret to effective communication, it's not really a secret, is listening. Because the, the answer to the problem we're trying to solve is with inside of you, not me. My, my, my goal as a coach is to help scaffold insight in you. I already know what I want. I have all the different ways to phrase it. I can show you the videos of it, but that doesn't help unless it shows up inside of you. And so as I've moved forward in in, in my coaching, it's been more about the experience, the phenomenological first-person experience of the athlete, which obviously, Rafe, is what you're getting at. When I'm in discussion with them, you know, if if they present very propositional, descriptive, step-by-step, this is what we want, yet they're not able to enact that, they're not able to achieve that, How how do we bridge, how do we get them to Feel and understand that disconnect and make the change. And so I, in, in my own intuition, would suggest that if you gave an athlete an opportunity to self-select how they want to receive information about movement, if you gave them the opportunity to self-select how they want movement communicated to them, that to use our language from earlier, they would self-select language that is not expressing knowledge of what to do propositionally, but more knowledge of how to do it. That gives them an insight into participatory, mm-hmm. phenomenologically, this is what it will the experience will be like from a first person perspective. And so in a study that we're currently writing up, we had approximately 125 uh, collegiate aged individuals, so in their early 20s, Half were men, half were women, half of each of them were athletes, half not. And we gave them a scale of cues from internal. So focus on this joint motion, to focus on this limb motion, to focus on this interaction with the environment, to then analogically think of this virtual environment, move as if. And over 80% of the respondents selected an external focus. They said, if I was being taught how to do this, we asked them about tennis, swimming, bench press, jumping, all sorts of different movements. We said, how would you wanna be coached? Which cue would you prefer? They, the vast majority went external cue or analogy and a very small minority preferred across the 16 movements for it to be very propositional, detailed, internal based. And so what that tells me intuitively, at least from this cohort, we'd like to expand it to larger, is that we intuitively know that there's this coupling. There's this physical relationship with the world around us. This is the problem we're trying to solve. And so from an athlete's perspective, um, I do believe, to get back to your question, if when I ask them what do they think they need to do or what are they feeling or what are they focusing on, if they give me a lot of this internal technical type jargon that seems to be disconnected from the gestalt, the the physical engagement of the movement as a whole within an environment. I try to bring their thinking, their language to just one thing. I say to them, okay, you've given me that detail, but like an address in your GPS in your car, what do you think is one thing you could think about to achieve that? And without fail, I start seeing them internally generate insight around analogy or something external. It's like there's no other thinking tool, but to revert back to environment or analogy to put the whole body in the context of the one thing they need to achieve. And, but what I'm saying prospectively as a coach to the larger coaching community, who's interested in languages impact on focus and movement is if you gave them the opportunity from the outset that is already built into us we already want to be thinking in terms of the whole, in terms of the environment, in terms of something analogical, which means it's still environment, but it's a virtual environment that I'm moving as if or in terms of. And so I'll, I'll give that back to you, just kind of as my thinking, at least at, at, at gesture one, uh, based on your question.
1: Well, that brings up, okay, so that's very cool because that sounds like the Rogerian approach to therapy, uh, right, uh, the way that, uh, that, you know it's all ultimately union too, that people uh, the psyche is a self uh, it's an autopoetic thing. it's trying to heal. Um, I'm, I'm using it th- uh, but then but the, the question the, the question that was always sort of harder for, uh, for, for Rogers was, well why do people need to come to therapy then? Like if it's in there and it's intuitive and it comes out just like that, what's the problem? Why isn't everybody just doing it? See and that's, that's to, that to me, that to me is the question I, I'm trying to press on here, because it seems to me there's a kind of self-knowledge that is missing, so that they can't tap that 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 intuitive knowledge. There's something. I mean, this is again, why do people get stuck? Why do they come to therapy? I agree with you, Nick. Uh, I agree that people have this tremendous capacity to generate the imaginal, to generate the the augmenting image that you, you know that you're enacting, but then it's but this is like, but why don't they then? And sorry, I'm not. I'm not yeah, trying to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not trying to be like. I'm not trying to uh, to, to float a lead balloon here. No, I it, think. It's, I think it's, it's a wonderful. Me, that's question. the Socratic question. That's the Socratic and question.
0: I'd like to. I actually think that um, if you go back and watch Nick's uh, presentation for the Embodied Movement Summit, you know, this was a question that he really got into: the question of like, why is the coach necessary? How do we uh, right. respect the the um, the capacity? of the athlete for self-organization and then recognize where it is insufficient,
1: right? That's the um, question exactly. So uh, sorry, I, I think I missed yeah. that, Nick, Sorry.
0: Yeah. So no, no, no. Also, I'll send it to you. It's, it's it's really wonderful. And I, you know, I think um, you know that was in part generated by the conversation that we had around you know the role of a constraint led approach versus you know the effective use of language, right?
1: Yep. yep, um, yep
0: so what yep. is that role of that uh, of the coach? So I'm gonna just propose something, and and we can play with it.
1: But, w- well, could I could I just broaden it? Because yeah, to me, that's that's the original question of why the shaman.
0: Okay, why the shaman? Excellent. Yeah. So, what what pops the word that pops into my head is opponent processing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That okay. that the coach or the therapist essentially becomes a way to create an opponent processing system. And in some sense, it's like a, it's actually a way to create an extended neural network to work Mm -hmm. on a problem, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the part of what a coach does is provide an, essentially an environment in which a problem can be presented and then viewed from more multiple lenses, Mm right? Our therapist, it's, it, you're, you're not acting so much as you're not exactly a wrench, you're more like another set of hands.
1: Does that make sense? Does that analogy work for you guys? Let me make sure. It sounds to me like what you're saying is what the therapist does, I mean, I'll use some therapeutic language, is it helps yeah. the individual externalize the problem yes. so that it can be seen from other than, so the problem is no longer completely transparent. The problem framing is no longer completely transparent. Yeah. Is, is, do, am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, I think that's, that's how I'm hearing it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay.
2: Can, can I? Can I take that that as a thought? The, the question then, as I hear it is, how do we get them to step out, see it from the bird's eye, see it from our perspective, see it from a third party perspective? The challenge is putting an embodied solution back in them. And, and that's, that's what I see as being the, the, the challenge and oftentimes the missing link when we are coaching people to use their body as a physical medium and that like a therapist, we can, we can work with them through various means, verbally, non-verbally, visually to show the problem, Hey, this isn't there or that should be, or even in discussion with them, openly, what do you see? The challenge still goes back to, well, how, how do I do that? And even today I was coaching somebody and I, I gave her an, an analogy the hill analogy john that you and i've talked yep, about yep, for running yep. and i said well, well what does that mean to you and she's like well i just need to lift my knee high she started giving me all this technical knowledge of what language even though that's not what i said i'm like no what do you think that's going to feel like hmm. and she's ah oh, i need to give more energy i i need to drive harder and she started using more what i would call kind of Gestalt esque language that didn't yeah, pin yeah. down any one aspect of the body, but gave a uh, a sense of how the whole body should come into harmony. What's the note the whole body should be should be playing? And so, for for me, analogy analogy plays such a central role in my ability to call upon other physical experiences from the first person that you can download and act as, as if Mm -hmm. the key thing though, is getting, and I've, I've used this phrase before, not getting your athlete to understand the language, the cue, the instruction, but getting the athlete, client, patient to feel the cue to, to literally, and Rafe, I said this to you the other day in our discussion, and John, I think I've said this to you. You've even cited that you see me do it real time. I feel, I literally, <laughs> I literally feel the language inside of my body. Yeah. Like it's yeah. jumping out. Yeah. And only then do I try to precisely put it into words to transfer it back into the other person's body. And, and that's where analogy, because analogy deals with past familiar experiences to help you take an element of that to better understand this new unfamiliar experience. It's meant to be transferring a physical meaning to the body. We just use language as the way to deliver it. But language should quickly dissolve if it's a good analogy and it should be, it should give the person a felt sense. And I'll I'll pause there. That's what I believe is important. And that's what's so challenging uh, for for many athletes, I'm finding them their ability to feel our language. I don't know. Over the last couple of years, doesn't seem to be as strongly um, inside of them. So I don't know why.
1: I, before I before Rafe, Before Rafe, because uh, I, I want Rafe to respond. I just wanted to say uh, Nick turned into a shaman there for a few minutes. <laughs> Did you see it? Where he was like uh, he's yeah. uh, he was the living the language. So I just wanted yeah. to say that. Yeah.
0: I have a a very strong claim that feels like it wants to come forth for me, which is that within motor learning and maybe within therapy, we actually maybe start to find the solution to the balance between phenomenology and science, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Because when we think about these things and these questions, there's, there's, There's so many paths that it can take through sort of just a neural space, right? It doesn't have enough grounding. We need a a clearer feedback loop. But what we can see when we get down to the level of physical performance is that that we need science in order to understand things about movement, but that we cannot communicate via science to achieve change in the athlete. Mm -hmm. So we have to understand the phenomenology of how the movement is experienced and better athletes have stronger phenomenological internal frames and don't necessarily have better uh, scientific understanding of how they move. And this analogizes up to any level of understanding how we organize behavior for human beings, right? You, 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 you can get insight into what you're trying to organize via science. But you can't actually change behavior without understanding what's happening at the phenomenological gestalt, gestalt level. Does this make sense to you guys? Yeah, uh, it, I'll, makes, I'll, it, I'll, makes, I'll, it makes. Yeah, yeah, it does. So but this is this seems like a very this feels like a very bold claim, and I haven't seen it somewhere else. But this is what gets at the point of why I think it's so important that this broader sense making conversation starts to take what's happening in the study of the body and body practices more seriously because I think that we need these high feedback systems that allow us to start to glean these insights. And um, what what I wanted to bring up, Nick, is so you said that most, 80% of athletes self-select. People. People.
2: Male, female athlete or not, it didn't matter. There there was, I mean, 80% of, of the 120 something people we pulled across 16 movements. If you look at all their selection criteria, all, all their selection preferences, 80% of them had a preference for external cue or, or or analogy, but external cue specifically, something about the environment, something that concrete said, here's how you interact with the bar, the ground, the opponent, the water, the racket.
1: So here, here's- I have a concern about that that I wanna bring up at some point. Yeah, okay. Please.
0: So here, here's my question about that, which is what about the 20% because as a coach, I have a, a sense that personally, as an athlete, I have the sense that I was always seeking propositional information excessively to try to control movement. And that this was a huge barrier for me in actually becoming the athlete that I could become. And that I consistently run into those people. They're a minority, but they exist and, and, and they speak to something about this, um, this uh, elevation of the propositional above everything else right? Because the sense is if I just have a better scientific model of this in my skill and I just apply my big ass brain to like trying to think harder than somebody else about it, that I'll control the skill better. And meanwhile, somebody else just, just plays with it and they can do it.
2: Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. So I left out a pretty important piece of the study. (laughs) And that is that we, um, the, the hypothesis, going into it and i've been chewing on this for years now is that those who graded higher on a motor imagery scale would be more likely to self-select into external cues or notably analogies now we used a imagery scale of which motor imagery was only one of the subscales Now there are very specific larger scales that just look at motor imagery. And and for those listening, that's literally how good you are at imagining things in your mind, but then motor imagery is how good you are imagining from the first person perspective, actually performing a movement as you would if in real life. And so there are validated scales to see how through self-report, how good you are at that. And so when we looked at the just visualization imagery in general, there was no relationship to preferences
1: exactly that's my, what i would have That's
2: okay, what i would have there was that, Yep however when we looked at the motor imagery subscale those that scored higher on that were systematically more likely to prefer an analogy yeah. which was my my initial hunch now I, I want to put an asterisk on that. I think we need more data and I think we need to revisit that study design again with a more motor imagery centric uh, initial inventory. However, it lends itself partly now to your, to your to your, comment, to your question, Rafe, and that is we're trying to get a sense of if people intuitively if given the option, have the ability to to visualize things well, You'd, you'd assume that they're likely to absorb language that references a physical environment or a virtual environment in the form of analogy is th- their affinity will be there. If you have very low motor imagery ability and there's extreme cases where people can't do it at all, then they're gonna depend more semantically it would appear to me propositionally just on give me the details step-by-step. Step. Now we have to pause for a second because in what we're talking about here, you literally could have someone who lacks motor imagery ability. And so if you don't give them actually something to see or detail out with their language, they literally will struggle to extract the visual from your analogy. And so in that real case, there might be a minority of people it would seem where your your internal language or use of uh, uh, video or demonstration is gonna take a larger role. And so let's just recognize that might be true. If we dissolve that use case and now we, reference what you're talking about, Rafe. I meet a lot of athletes who want the propositional knowledge. I see this a lot in baseball, very technical sports. They want all the detail. They think that they can can think their way into better performance. I meet these individuals all the time and I meet the coaches of these individuals all the time. Rarely do I find that they're suffering from a lack of imagination and ability to visualize. There seems to be something in their own makeup or in the coaching circles they've been exposed to, kind of like WebMD, they WebMD their technique (laughs) to death. And then that's what they bring to the table with so much propositional baggage, they cannot participate. They have no attentional reserve to step back into this real environment they're working with. And when coaches come to me saying, how do you get them to stop giving all this detail? I let them give the detail. But then I put the challenge to them. Do you think you can fundamentally think about all those things while you're trying to hit a fastball? And they quickly will say, no. I said, okay. So we recognize the importance of you knowing this and we recognize that it gives you a level of comfort in in owning your task. But what do you think is the one thing you can think about to bring that to life? And I find through that Socratic process of questioning, we inevitably can get to either a very punchy external cue, or some kind of visualization that usually takes form of an analogy that gives them great comfort. And that they know behind that is all the detail, but it can crescendo in this one idea that allows them to bring it to life. But if a coach doesn't realize that needs to take place, then they're they're likely gonna be feeding the information train that is in, in, I think our discussion, further disconnecting them from the physicality needed to express it.
1: So for that, first- so you answered a concern and you answered my question, because what what you what I see you doing, Nick, is you're actually doing the Socratic aporia. You're getting them to realize a performative contradiction. You say yes. all this, but could you actually perform it? No. That's the performative contradiction right there. And you even said it a minute ago. You're Socratically inducing them into it, to realizing that all of that is not consistent with their potential performance. So you, that's the that's what that's the moment I was looking for. It's like where. So you're doing that. That's the moment of how you in- induce this. Like you said, the Socratic aporia. Notice how all of this is a performative contradiction. It's theoretically consistent, but that's not the only inconsistency. What you're saying is that is inconsistent with your performance, and you know yeah. this, and that opens them up. The second thing is you address the concern I have in the way you explain the data, because I was worried that visualization equivocates between the imaginary and the imaginal and what your data is suggesting to me is it cleanly is deciding between them it's saying the imaginary is shit it doesn't help you at all but the imaginal works and i i would strongly recommend that you put both of those and you use you in in direct comparison just get people to visualize in their head right and then get them how would you almost pretending because that's the difference between the imaginary, the imaginary is you're looking. The imaginal is you're pretending or you're proto-pretending or you're pretending yeah. in your mind, right? And put those into contrast because I strongly predict the first, it'll replicate your previous data, won't do much. But the yeah. second will be predictive. Then the thing that would be interesting is, is also to see if that further predicts, sorry, I'm turning into a scientist now. No, this is I wanna love pur- it. Hey, hey, hey
2: further- you want to be, be on
1: the next study? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Yes, yes. So I I am serious, I do. Yeah, I know. So right. <laughs> so right. Yes. I made
0: science happen. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, you did. And then and then if you could do a study longitudinally, like before and after, is that imaginal ability that's predictive of the selection, is it also predictive of increased leading learning speed or uh, or yeah. learning quality? Yeah. That would that yeah. would and if, and if that all lines up, it'd be like, wow, powerful empirical evidence there for what we're talking about here.
0: 100. There's there's a, a zoom out that I think needs to happen here, right? We're we're we're, we're toggling between um, how how we we can operate the cognitive system or the the mental system in order to achieve performance enhancement in a physical sense, right? But we're recognizing that this that we're generating insights that actually scale up. Yes. Right. Yes. And so I think we've dug deep into, okay, here, here's how it's operating at the, at the level where we can really concretize it in a physical task. So years ago, I had this, this sense that I had this recognition that the best athletes were frequently the worst coaches when you started them coaching because expert um, had,
1: it's yeah. got a name. Expert yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. So what I, what I saw was that so I, I, my, my co-founder at Parkour Vision is the first like parkour teaching program that I really built. Uh, his name was Tyson. He's an extraordinarily talented athlete. He's one of the most talented athletes in that kind of generation of, of athletes. And I would watch him coach. And so people would sort of like ask, how, how do you do this skill? And he would say, you do it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it I've heard it before. Yep. <laughs> right?
0: He would just he would look, look at them in a kind of confused way and sort of he would physically demonstrate, it. he would gesture, right? But like there was no the thing was one thing in his mind. It was not multiple things. Right? Yes. yes. And then I would come in and I had the ability to atomize the skill, right? Well, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this. Sequential, right? Um and that was helpful, right? Athletes learned better there and then later I learned to Get them to, to 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 be able to get the same thing without atomizing it. But it helped me to understand that it needed to be at, what the atomization of it was. But then I had this 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 sense at some point that um, I'm trying to remember how this played out. But there was this interesting thing, which was that parkour skills were hard for me initially, and so I and I parkour and gymnastics were hard, and I had a very atomized sense of them. Martial arts and tree climbing were easy for me because I started them when I was a child. I started martial arts when I was six years old. So understanding where an error is arising in someone's organization of a punch is far less intuitive for me because the pattern is so deep inside me that it's incomprehensible to me that people don't get it, right? It just doesn't. I. I just struggled there, right? And it was the same thing with tree climbing. There were all these things that were implicit. And so I had this recognition that there was this whole aspect of myself that was not consciously apprehendable that was was generating the control of these things. And then as a coach, I had to have the ability to pull it up into the explicit, right? I had to become conscious of what was unconscious for me. And then what I realized was that I... What I was trying to achieve in myself, and then in the athletes I was working with, was the ability to then get that all to absorb and go into the subconscious again, mm-hmm. right? And the way that this zooms out, I think, is that you know we have this question of what is consciousness and why are we consciousness? Well, it's, I think it's to, precisely to, to to solve these types of problems, mm-hmm. but but we have we have collapsed our sense of self to what is represented in the consciousness in some sense. And so there's almost this desire to just accumulate stuff there, but it's not, we're not not taking it down. We're not recognizing that it's when it's subconscious that we're actually, in some sense, capable of really utilizing it, right? So I can accumulate rules about how to be a better husband, right? But if I don't have practices and I don't have means to embody them, right, then they're not that useful to me. Or more importantly, to my spouse. So how? So so what we're what I'm I, what I think we're looking at here is is creating that dialectic between these two things. How yeah, do we get better at pulling them up, breaking them into the pieces so that we can understand them? That's essentially the science. And then saying those pieces don't help you until you have a process that rehomes them.
1: But, but also so vice versa, right? You can't really self-correct yeah. them very much if you're too. Yes. So I yes. mean, I, I I have a. I talk about explication and exemplification. Like so, when, when I'm talking about what, trying to get what's going on in dialogue, dialectic into dialogos, right? You you're you're constantly doing the move between uh, theory and theory. You're constant you're constantly doing this thing where you're trying to zoom out in explication, but but and it's like you said, Rafe, it's like of processing. And this is the Neoplatonic thing. You zoom out in explication, and but you feel the pull and you you sense it. You love it. You feel, you also pull back into the exemplification, and then you feel the pull out to explication, and then you feel, this is what you're trying to, this is the, this is that vertical dimension of dialectic and into dialogos that Chris and I are always talking about. So the horizontal is between you and the other person, mm-hmm. right? And you're trying, you're trying to do the in and out, like, and we've been talking about the horizontal a lot in, yeah. the, in, in our discussion, but what you just brought out was the new, what the Neoplatonic, right, the vertical, which is explication exemplification and constantly keeping them opponent processing. They're not adversaries. They're pulling you in opposite direction, but for the benefit of each other, each corrects the other, right? Cause the problem with exemplification is exactly the experts fallacy and the problem here. And let me, let me give you one quick example. And this comes up in the martial arts, but it generalizes. So you get, and, and Sternberg did this, you get experts who can play bridge. Okay. You get them to play novices. What happens? They crush the novices, of course. What would you expect then you say to everybody we're going to slightly change the rules and we got a new game called smidge in which all the rules are slightly changed in this way now what happens the novices crush the experts right you can get so exemplified you can't pull out and restructure if there's novelty which is you're right that's exactly the point of consciousness that's what i've argued in untangling the world not it pulls us out but not for its own sake it pulls, we do, it's the, it's, it's the, you, 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 rise, you rise to the sun, but you have to return back into the cave to use the original version of this analogy, right? You have to explicate and to improve your, right? Exemplification. And then you exemplify in order to improve. And that dialectic is going on inside you, like in circling and, uh, and logos practice while you're doing this with other people and you get those in sync together. Like, I, I can only use like a, a musical metaphor. It's like you're moving up and down octaves, right? But you and the other person are creating the melody. And then you move up and down the octaves while you're generating the melody together, if that makes any sense as a metaphor. So, so that's exactly, that's exactly an,
2: I think, an important point. So I'm trying to hold two or three ideas that are just quickly <laughs> wanting to escape out of my mind. Um, so let me try to grab them as I can. First one is, is a question. Um, and let me preface the question you know john you, you and i talked about in uh, our, our last one or two calls around my emerging exposure to george lakoff yeah and yep, and just yep. you know discussing rave i'm not sure how familiar you are with his work but just the the physical nature of language and, and notably the physical nature of of metaphor yes. and analogy and that, that you know he he, th- he theorizes that that all metaphor and analogy comes back to a physical sensory motor, motor source of, of meaning and truth so to speak literally you know baked into our neurology and that you know the 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 door before we ever learn the word for door is a sensory motor experience visually tactile of a door and then inevitably you know door becomes symbolized in the word door and then all the various metaphors you know walking through the door that we can start to use to convey other sorts but there's a, there's a physical basis for it and so my, my question, Ray for John would be firstly, and, and then I have a, a few points I might like to make. Um, when we say we und- we, we under we understand something, right? It, it means something to us. To use the two levels, John, that you're talking about, the, the explication, the exemplification, to truly understand something and thus for it to have meaning to us, does it need to live at both levels? You know, d- does all meaning in some form or fashion that we understand have to live in the body, literally, in, in, a, in a physical sensory motor form. And thus, it can't just be at the, at the propositional level. Does the propositional need to give rise to some participatory sense of the meaning in the physical form, almost in the way we talk about gesture? Does it need to live in both for us to say, I understand that, I get that at a truly authentic level?
0: I think if it's relevant to behavior, it has to be embodied. So if I collect knowledge about the frogs of the Amazon, I can just have a bunch of fun propositions bouncing around in my head because they don't have a, a behavioral output.
1: Nice right? pun. Nice pun, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: I just changed one thing, hopping around your head. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thank, you.
0: Thank you. You gotta, you gotta put that, that perfect external yeah. aspect of it on there. Yeah. But what I see and what I'm increasingly convinced of is that the, the knowledge that really matters to us in life isn't these things that we can just play with that are fun, right? It's the things that have direct impact on our behavior. And as long as those only exist as propositions, we are we are we we don't have them. They're not there, right? That's why like, I, I'm sure you guys have experienced this sense of like, oh, here's this, I have this epiphany. Oh my God, I, I really understand this now. And then you think, and you're like, I knew that. I knew that, but I didn't know it, mm-hmm. right? It, it, it was present at this level, but not at this level. So I'll give you guys an example. When I was learning jujitsu, so I'm, I'm, I'm 220 pounds now, you know, 205 pounds maybe when I was starting to learn jujitsu and I'm naturally athletic, right? And most of my training partners are smaller than me and less physically gifted as far as athleticism. And so I could just grind through them on pure athleticism and size and throw them around. And I had coach after coach tell me, um, you won't get good at jujitsu doing that, right? You're, you're relying on an attribute-based approach to fighting and you're, 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 not, you're just gonna cap your growth, right? And I was like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. I, I did jujitsu for two and a half years, was like four years basically between two different schools. And never really got it right. Then, nine years later, I come back to jiu jitsu and I get on the mats and I start smashing through people. Right. Same story. And then there's this aha moment like, the only pathway to the skills that I want, to the understanding that I want, is to be able to soften my approach such that I can see new things. Right. And and I was like, why didn't anybody tell me this? And then I, and I was like, they did. They told me it over and over and over again, right? But the knowledge was up here. It wasn't in a felt sense that my body could understand what it meant to play in a way that had sensitivity such that that optimal learning could happen for me and for my partner.
2: So I'm hearing you. I hear you. Does all meaning have a feeling? Well, th-
1: I think I want to answer that. Yeah. So, Nick, I think he sent it to you. I, I mean, I, I, I have criticisms of the Lakoff and Johnson.
2: You have. You told me. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Precisely yeah. because it's purely bottom up. They, they overcompensate. They overcompensate for the Kantian purely top down with an with a, 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 a overly bottom up. And I published critical work on that, saying like, no, because part of what I want to say, what consciousness does, or at least one of the things I'm proposing it does, is it not only explicates, that explication can also be exaptation, right? And so we know the brain is an exaptation machine. It takes this thing from here, and it figures, oh, if I tweak it just like this, I have a new machine over here, right? And the the problem with, again, with like, and see, that's what the, the bridge experts couldn't do. Right? They, they couldn't exact uh, because their structure was so tight uh, the novices had a looser structure so it, it has what's called in biology degeneracy right it, it, their structure isn't super rigid it's got some give in it so that it can be reshaped uh, it, it's got a pre it's got a pre-adaptive potential because if you get it too too locked in you lose that so I think uh, to respond to your question, we have to make use of a term you made and make use of a distinction here, because this is something I'm doing in the book I'm writing with my son on, on pedagogy, on teaching, uh, which is we have to make a distinction. This is now very current in both the psychological and philosophy of science literature between knowledge and understanding. And, and let me give you an example. Let, let, let's take it as definitional that when we're talking about law, knowledge right now, we're talking about, you know, we're not talking about the four kinds of knowing, we're talking about like knowledge, proposition, truth. So An essential property of knowledge is that it's true, or at least highly probable that it's true or something like that. Mm. Now, I want you to see, I want to give you an example of the distinction between truth and knowledge. You open a grade nine or 10 physics textbook and you'll see the Bohr model of the atom, the solar system. It's almost completely false. Why do we keep putting this in textbooks? We put it in textbooks because it affords understanding, right, people and the difference between knowledge and understanding is understanding is gr- the ability to grasp the significance of what you know, the significance to other pieces of knowledge, other kinds of knowing, right? And so what I would say and, and to you, Nick, is that I, if we're talking about understanding, if we're talking yes, about yes. meaning in terms of understanding rather than meaning in terms of knowledge, then yes, I yes. think it is required that, and this is Corban's idea, that The sensual and the conceptual always need the imaginal. So we've been talking about, again, the imaginal this way, but Corbin also talks about it in the vertical dimension. The imaginal is precisely what allows for exaptation up into the conceptual and for explication and exaptation. And it's also what affords embodiment, exemplification into the sensual. And I think whenever we're trying to deeply understand anything, and this is a Kantian point, right? If we don't grasp the significance of the sensual for the conceptual or the conceptual for the sensual, I think we don't do it. I mean, science is even ultimately predicated on getting that, on getting how your sensory motor experience is relevant to to your most abstract scientific ideas and your most abstract scientific ideas have to make an impact somewhere, a real impact in your sensory motor experience. So I agree with Rafe where it matters to us, but what I'm saying is I think to answer your question more broadly, whenever we're talking about understanding, and you see in science, isn't just prediction, that's the knowledge part. It's also explanation, which is the understanding of art. I think if you're talking about meaning in connection to understanding, the imaginal always has to be there. I disagree with Lakoff and Johnson though. It's not just bottom up, it's dialectic. it, It goes both ways and the both ways that resonant when, uh, when the vertical resonance and the horizontal resonance are clicking when they're optimally affording each other. I think that's understanding because think of what I'm saying is if you, if you, if you, if you can't relate this right down to your sensory motor experience, there's a sense of what, like even, even the thing with the frogs, it's hollow. uh, Right, you, like that has to, you, you at least have to accept, this is a Kantian argument, that there are possible experiences you could have based on those propositions. Like you could go to the Amazon, and then you would see this, and you would see this, and you would see that. And that's how that's supposed to differ from something like astrology, that it has this art, tremendously complex theoretical structure, but it can't tell you ever how it how it reliably translates into sensory motor. So, so I think it's a deeper point here. I think it's a deeper point. I think the, what's missing in the, in the understanding of science is that, and this was Corban's point, the imaginal is always there. It's always there. Can I reflect back you know, something here? Because I think this is
0: profound and it, it's intriguing to me. Um, so if we take the analogy of the frogs, right? So yep. you can collect knowledge about frogs what i heard you say is that if you want to operationalize that knowledge to actually produce insight it has to route through the sensory motor and the imaginal
1: well can i inter- interject to in one thing i would change and i say if i wanted to if i wanted to say i really want to understand frogs okay i really want to get frogs
0: yes yeah so I, I'm struck here, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to get at this thing that's, that's going in my head here because there's this sense that, I mean, part of, you know, the, the problem of, of, of rationality or science and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, logical positivism is this idea that we can we can extract ourselves from ourselves
1: completely. Right. Well, we can and we can't. I mean, this is <laughs> this is this is the critique of Marla Ponty. We can, but you know, but ultimately we can't. That w- and that's yes. that's the whole critique. What you what I could say is you could sort of. I don't want to sound too Freudian here, but at sort of a conscious level, you can do that, but you can't do it. All you're engaged language I just used mm-hmm. earlier. You're engaged in a kind of performative contradiction. Inevitably, a performative contradiction if you think you can live, or just be in that space.
0: Yes, so. So if we if we accept this critique that there is no view from nowhere, right, mm-hmm. then one one derivation from that ends up at basically postmodernism because now we're we're stuck in, in in subjectivity,
1: right? Yeah, that's a mistake.
0: That's a mistake, but but you can see where that that trends. So there there has to be yeah, there has to be a. a, a a higher level of understanding a consilience here that, that brings us back because we know that the science works right we're talking to each other because of the ability to 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 adopt to some degree this view from nowhere which allows us to objectivize things and not have the subjective interfere with everything and then we can build the transistor uh, you know the uh, the transistor chip and everything else that allows this conversation right because when we had everything when we had the subjective bleed into everything it, it made it difficult for us to ground truth claims Science, that's where yeah. we have that's where alchemy doesn't work and chemistry does yes but what what I'm hearing and is that while that's while that view from nowhere is a lens that we need in fact in, in order to actualize it effectively a scientist has to be able to integrate it With the phenomenological experience of themselves as a as an operant you know as an agent in the environment right does that make sense it's like you're you're saying that the understanding that actually allows you to progress in science comes from the ability to play in that view but then to bring it down of course
1: yeah i think sorry that's not true it's like yeah yeah because you have you have a
0: feel there's a feel that is associated with actually doing good science. And we know that this is true that there's these hunches that scientists get, right? And they're not from a purely rational standpoint, but it seems to me like, at least in the the way that I've seen people dialogue about this, there hasn't been a clean way to describe how these two things interact, that felt sense level and that objective lens level. And I think this is right at the heart of what you do and why it's so important.
1: But yeah, and I, I don't want to take sole credit. I mean, I think all of the 40 cognitive science people are trying to do exactly what you're talking about. And and, that's, and, and what I don't hear enough of is, because these people also are deeply enmeshed in the Heideggerian phenomenological tradition from which most of postmodernism arose, yeah. and they have a different response. And it's to, it's to do what you just did. It's to say, well, yeah, there is no view from above, but that doesn't mean uh, there aren't higher views, right? Um, so, you didn't give me an argument showing me that because there was no ultimate objectivity, there's no difference between viewpoints. I didn't see that argument. Where is that argument? And notice that you're engaging in a performative contradiction because what the postmoderns, like your Derrida, you say, well, it's all based on difference. And so, what you're doing is claiming there's a general theory. That explains meaning generation while denying that there's an objective view. It's a performative contradiction. And then he does these weird sort of things. And it's like to say, well, no, no. What I can say is that 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 theory is a higher theory than our everyday understanding of how language works. Kudos to you, Derrida. And we should pay attention to it. Stop. But do do I think it's going to be the absolute final theoretical word? No. No, I don't. Right? It's, it's so, going to evolve. So, 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 if so, I can so, so, good one more one more sec, couple of seconds Nick. The, the response to the postmodernist to say is to say, like, whoever th- I mean the the point of Nagel was to show ultimately right that the view from uh, if you turn the view from above into the view from nowhere you hit existential absurdity, And absurdity under that's why he wrote the essay the absurd absurdity undermines your agency. And then everything you're doing from there is a performative contradiction. So you have to acknowledge, right, the non-propositional processes that alleviate the absurdity in order for you to not be in a performative contradiction in uttering your claims about everything being relative, blah, 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 blah. And then the the 40 cognitive scientist comes in and says, aha, it's those non-propositional propositional things that you're doing that alleviate absurdity, this stuff we're talking about here, afford understanding that I'm saying you are committed to as well. That's exactly the argument I would make.
2: Um, Just to articulate what what I'm hearing and and getting back to actually the, the next point I wanted to make after the question, which my intuition was when I truly understand something, when it has meaning to me, that at least at one level, I, I feel I can grasp in a relevant way. I mean, I can do something with it at least part, in, in a participatory manner. But ideally, in my work, I can then convert that back into language to hopefully help you take it and bring it in. Uh, that that really brings us back to how we started the conversation. And maybe this segues into the shamanism again, and that's on analogy. And so you have the, the, the athlete, again, to make it very pragmatic, who's giving us all of this propositional knowledge about their technique, about the movement, yet they still can't do it. And so in that case, we might say, to use the way we're using knowledge we're certain, they have knowledge about the movement, mm-hmm. but they don't truly have understanding they can't yeah, bring it yeah. to life. They don't have the, the sensual, they, they can't participate as if that knowledge was inside of them, they can only verbalize it. And so I believe analogy creates that bridge. An analogy by its very nature I think requires that felt sense. It calls upon an experience. You know, so if we we use the one that I use all the time of, you know, someone's sprinting and they're staying flat and hunched, and I say, sprint out as if you were sprinting up a hill to get their body to naturally rise, which I might even analogize to a jet taking off. It doesn't require, for them to use that, it doesn't require that they download where the hip, the knee, the ankle, is, none of that is required. They literally, through the imaginal processes that we're talking about, leveraging their sensory motor simulator, if I can use that as a phrase, mm-hmm. they know what that feels like immediately. And all of a sudden they can move as if they can tap that, that truly has a place inside their sensory motor milieu. It's already inside of them. And they simply, as you said earlier, a beauty of consciousness, they exact the meaning from running up a hill to its relevance to running straight and taking mm-hmm. the body position that let's mm-hmm. say maps to both. And so what analogy does is I, I think it operates propositionally to the degree we're using language, but it it requires for it to work. It requires that you have the sense of what that means. It, it comes baked in, the gestalt is already there. And that's why I think it's such a powerful way not only to articulate movement, but to articulate so many other concepts because by the very nature of analogy i think to understand it you truly need propositional and sensory motor participatory experience baked together
0: mm-hmm. so, it's, so it's interesting go it's, ahead it's, go um ahead. nick you mentioned shamanism in there and and there was some point at that at that where and as John was speaking <clears throat> before where I had the sense that this like this is the point where it enters the conversation because so, like that was the, the beginning of a conversation was we're, we're going to talk about this and then we've we've, we've talked a lot a lot about, about about a lot of other things but I think there's something here about the idea of um, how we use the imaginal right and how we we use that to essentially operationalize behavioral change right so we get get propositions and we bring them down into the body that uh that there's some insight that we that that is there within the shamanic tradition um that's useful for us to understand this it started to feel like it was it was it was coming in and i'm I'm curious to john for you to um to explain your perspective on that and then we can go from there
1: well, that, that's great, because, I mean, so shaman means uh, to know, but also to see, so it really, uh, really uh, straddles that. Um, so, l- let me try and use something from, again, I- I've already talked a bit about it, uh, like when you're, when you're in circling, or you're, in, especially when, you, what Guy Senstock calls circling 2.0, dialogos, dialectic into dialogos. Dialectic is the practice, dialogos is the process, um, and I like to keep those separate, because I don't, People say I do I do dialogos. No, you do dialectic, and if you're lucky, dialogos take shape. And it, because it, it has to t- it, it's not dialogos if it isn't a logos that's taken on a life of its own. That's kind of mm-hmm. something I, that I want to say. And that's precisely goes towards the point because what I find interesting is when people are in these practices, they start to use they they so you, Nick's point and your point will come together. They start to use this, they start to use language. They start to use very symbolic language, uh, but it borders on—it it, 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 it not even borders on—it's often religious and, um, and shamanic. People will talk about the we space, and they'll talk about this, this—the the logos that is taking life, and like they—they they talk our spirits here. But I, they don't mean a, a séance. Although so one person, one sent uh, dialectic is like a, a, a is like a secular séance in which you're summoning the <laughs> your logos. Um, so, they, 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 so the phenomenology was there. Now, now, why am I saying all this? Because And to me, because Leo Ferrara and I wrote about this when we talked about reformulating the mindfulness construct, we talked about shamanism, and I also talked about it before. Because this is a concern I've had, um, and and, and I get a little wincy, and and not because you guys are using it, because I trust you guys, but there's a danger with using words like feeling. Because our, cult- our culture loves that language. It's very at home with that language, and it's by and large useless language. I know that's not how you're using it, Nick. I hope you understand that. I'm yeah. expressing a concern about the term in general, not your usage. Beca- and so I wanna bring, I wanna try and say, can we sharpen that side of things? Because what you have to do in circling is you have to have, in fact, you often start by doing quite a bit of mindfulness first. You have to really tune in, you really have to get that vertical dimension alive with mindfulness. And you know, in mindfulness, and you guys have seen, I think the work where I talked about mindfulness, you practice zooming out and zooming in, right? My uh, breaking frame and making frame, breaking frame and making. That's what happens in an insight, and shamans are, are doing that, right? And then, and then you, and then you, then you pick up, and this goes towards Siegel's work that the my ability to mindset other people is the same ability I'm using when I'm mindsetting myself in mindfulness, and that what you're trying to do it's you get the stereoscopic vision where I'm trying to mindset the other person and adjust my behavior so they can read me more accordingly. But notice what that requires. Look look what this hand's doing. This requires a lot of mindfulness. It requires like the genlit focusing. It requires, in fact, being able to like, okay, where, like, where is this in my body? Okay, here. Okay. What is it in my body? Oh, it's, it's a tight sort of hot, right? Okay. What images come up for me, right? In that? So I, I spend time giving this language so it can talk to me, right? And, and, and I learned to do that sort of on the fly while I'm talking to other people. So there's there's this very fluid, enacted self-knowledge going like this, interacting like this. And shamans do both practices. We know this. They, and they do them in an integrated fashion. They go into the shamanic trance in which they fall into a profound, they're, they're, they're totally cut off. And they go in, right? And it's a deep inward journey, we would say. And then what they do is they, and then, and then they enact what's happening, right? And they turn it back. They coordinate this dynamic, resonant, internal. I don't quite like these metaphors, but we'll use them for now. Mindfulness with this dynamically resonant external mindset. And they get mind resonance and mindfulness resonance going together. So I'm trying to suggest to you that the shaman, I, I'm arguing, and I argue, I've published this before, so this precedes this conversation. It's not self-surfing. <laughs> I've argued that that's, that's exactly what the shamanic ritual does. It, it integrates those two together. And, this, and so that's why I keep bringing up this question is I want to know and, and this, is not any, this is not a critique, but it, it goes towards the, the question of broadening. I want to know how the self-knowing project, the Socratic project, and the improving the practice project are, are, are being coordinated so that I would want to replace feeling with mindfulness. That what people are doing is not just feeling it, they're getting a mindful insight into it. And then that is being carried out. See, the reason why we talk to other people, right, is because they, they criticize us. They have alternative beliefs. And then when we take that back, that you, 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 Rafe, you said you bring it up to the propositional level, but it doesn't just sit there. We talk to other people. And then what happens is if we're, if we're fluent, and this is what happens in circling, you're talking to other people and they challenge you. Not, not theoretically, they usually, they're challenging you like to, to say more or open it up or be more authentic. And then you internalize that back in and then you externalize it and you internalize it. And you, you're doing this and this at the same time. And that's what, that's what I think is the shamanic heritage. And I would like to know, sorry, I'm, I'm getting too demanding. I don't mean to be imperious. That's <laughs> no, no, no. I don't mean no, that. That's great. But, but I, I, I want, I, I want to know, right. How to, I get it I, you, you want better athletes that's great and, and, but uh, Rafe I think I, I have the right to, to Nick but Nick you've expressed the you want to, to explore the spiritual dimension so I think it's fair for me to bring this up and Rafe you've always talked about how it's not just improving the performance right that there's there's this element of self-knowing that's going on and uh, and that's where that's what I would want to bring into this conversation by invoking the shaman because the shaman you know shamans even have larger vocabularies typically than their community they invent their own words. They invent their own terms. Like they do all this stuff. So that, that was a long preamble. Yeah. But, so that, but if I can pick it people up. People are in there. But when, so, one more thing. <laughs> when people <laughs> are in that, like when they get into that state, that internal flow and then flow within distributed cognition, they start speaking spiritually, religiously, right? The, the metaphors and the, the, the poetry and the poesis become inseparably bound together. And that to me is very shamanic.
0: So I think Nick, I want you to go next because I think when I go next, it's going to probably take a long time. So. <laughs>
2: no, I, I have I have one. I just have a very, very short observation, but it echoes. And maybe I need to call myself, uh, you know, a shaman in training. I, I don't know, but when I'm out coaching, like. People when they watch me coach and they meet me and it's, it almost feels it's like I just come to life when I'm coaching. I'm, mm. I'm physic- mm. I am, I, am mm. I could probably coach without even talking. It's just and, and so what I inevitably expect of my players is that they quite literally become, what they are learning. Like they don't just learn it, but they become it. And, and I know mm-hmm. like that's that's obvious in a physical medium, but Rafe, I think you'll reinforce, it, it's very difficult to see someone physically transform where they become this thing that started as words and thoughts and they become it to such a level that they cannot rewind the tape. They mm-hmm. can't go backwards. They're fundamentally holistically changed and mm-hmm. Yes. Just just today, I I had a training session. It was a global breakthrough training session where you saw the players that they had become something different and that it was unavoidably available to them, that the person with the most in our world overthinking, even as best as he could try, could not screw up what he had now become. And it's, it's this idea that the knowledge had finally become part. It was meaningful. They understood it in a literal way. And even at that point in, in the movement world, I'm okay if the propositional knowing dissolves as long as they can enact it and they can, they can be it and they can feel it. And it goes right back. And then I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Raith, where someone says, I know what I want to say but I can't put it into words. That for me, is it's in my body. I have a level, it happens to me all the time. Even in these conversations, it's happened to me today, right now, where I can feel something far more articulate and nuanced than I have words for. And what I love about this is we're showing this verticality, these these layers coming together, and it's resonating heavily with me because I try to convey that to the people I work with. It's not, this is not flippant words. These words are an access to a deeper understanding and expression of yourself, literally.
0: So the, the first thing I want to address is oh, what is the point of, of the coach, right, in the long term, right? And then then I want to get into the shamanism, but like, clearly, Nick, your curiosity is, is far beyond, you know, can I take a tenth off of somebody's twenty time, right? And, and for myself, I've moved. I, I'm very interested in the performance layer, but ultimately I recognize the performance layer serves the human layer. Right? That ultimately we're in the we're in the um, we're in the job of helping produce better human beings. Right? Human beings who are more capable, more adaptable, and hopefully more oriented towards something that's positive and good for them. Right? And so ultimately, these projects and your project, John, I think are are are, are completely aligned. Right? It is. It's about recovering meaning right and the reason that i think this is so interesting is because at the layer the problem i see is that i talk about this within martial arts right there's the Do martial arts and the jitsu martial arts a Do martial art is a martial art that's oriented towards um, the way in which you change right and a jitsu is a set of techniques mm-hmm. do is Dao, jitsu is technique that's what that means right but there's this problem that has happened which is that the do martial arts have tended to become disconnected from reality and to become home to lots of bullshit claims.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So the jitsu martial arts, much more frequently, contain the the ingredients of real transformation because they're, they're essentially they're like grounded in scientific epistemology. Right. You actually know if you're getting better but then they don't generalize as much, right? And so we need to find this balance between the jitsu and the dough. Right? That, that's, that's how I see the role of a performance. And if we look at the history of sport. Why, do, why, do, why was rugby invented, right? Well, rugby was part of the educational package of, of schools, right? The, the, the Battle of Waterloo was run, won upon the playing fields of Eton. The purpose of rugby was not to perform better at rugby. The purpose of rugby was to, to produce young men capable of sustaining the British Empire. Yeah. Right Now, we don't necessarily want to have the same imperial or nationalistic purposes now, but we do want to understand that these are ultimately tools for self-cultivation. That's that's what, where I'm coming. From. So that that's just what I wanted to say about that. But to go back to shamanism. I remember when I first encountered Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. You make a very, very bold claim, and, and it was one I, I still am a little bit hesitant about, right? right. Okay. 60,000 years ago, you know, there's an expansion in human behavior, right? The, the symbolic explodes, okay. and we see this massive increase in technological uh, competency really quickly, right? Yep. And you attribute this to shamanism,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is, is a reasonable supposition, but it's a bit of a just so story potentially because we can't really extract that from the archaeological record and as someone who has an anthropological and archaeological background I'm, I'm always concerned about that and the other aspect is what is shamanism right because one of the things that bothers me as a student of anthropology is this tendency to lump indigenous peoples into a single category right you'll hear someone tell you oh this is an old native american story or a native american practice i'm like what do you mean native american like you're talking about thousands of different nations with different traditions and and so i'm, all, I'm always curious how much we can generalize this idea of, of of what a shamanic practice is like i mean shaman is a it's a siberian word right it comes from yep. uh, uh i'm not sure which siberian tribe but uh there's a specific siberian tribe that yep. it comes from yep. and then anthropologists have noticed that there is a similar kind of role that's played in many indigenous yes, cultures yes, yes yes um but to what degree are we confident that, that 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 role is playing the same function across all these cultures and that it is it is generating this thing and so that that was my first critique of that but the other the other thing that i have going on and i'll i'll i think i'll kind of finish this story and then let let you respond if you don't mind john Um, is i was raised in the counterculture and i know a lot of white shamans right i know a lot of a lot of people who are taking on these practices and and a lot of it reminds me of the things that i don't appreciate about the doe martial arts it's a lot of a lot of a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, nothing um as far as that and so i i told you guys in that email um When I was eight years old, I had a mentor who came into my life. I was ADHD and dyslexic, and I was taken out of school. And I had a neighbor who had started babysitting me a lot, and he he volunteered to help my mom with homeschooling me. And Eventually, he ended up homeschooling me almost completely. He was a spiritual seeker, right? He had spent time in the yogic tradition, He came out to the West Coast from... He walked across the entire country from Virginia to to Washington State uh, with his partner and their dogs, and he found... Uh, a religious group called the the Red Cedar Circle, and the Red Cedar Circle uh, was formed around Johnny Moses. Johnny Moses was a was someone who'd been trained. I believe he's a Tulalip Indian. He'd been trained in the memorizing tradition of that of that people as a child, but then he'd been taken away to boarding school, and you know, gone through all the the terror of of, of being culturally. Uh, colonized basically right but he he tried to teach these traditions and he offered this to everybody right we're gonna we're gonna offer the sasewis religion to anyone who wants to come and lots and lots of white people came and and they started playing out these shamanic rituals so we would all get together i when i was 12 years old i i had a potlatch right i got a bunch of stuff and gave it away um this is my only experience of organized religion. Um, I think both of you guys have evangelical Christian backgrounds, right? So I had a very different background. Um, and, you know, I guess you both started to doubt your evangelical Christianity in your teens, right? Okay, so same for me, right? So I was embedded in this, nine, ten years old. I'm beating my drum and I'm painting my face and I am have my red handkerchief and uh, you know, I was bathing in the cold water in the in the winter, and going to these uh, ceremonies and all these ceremonies. Um, you know, the 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 dancers. You know, basically, people danced with their their spirit animals. They had a spirit animal. You know, that was the kind of the, the priestly caste, where people who had spirit animals and then they would dance. And Johnny Moses would tell stories, and there were songs and stuff, and we'd have feasts, right? And, and there was all this talk about, you know, this person did something wrong and it made the spirits animal, uh, mad. And that's why all this bad stuff is happening. And, you know, this person is sending bad energy and black magic. And, and at a certain point, I just had the sense that like, you can send all the black magic you want at me. It won't have a damn impact, right? Like if I don't believe it, there's nothing there. And, and so I had this real sense of, um, of, a shallow, of an emptiness to it, right? And so when I was listening to you guys talk about shamanism in the last uh, conversation you had, I had this realization that perhaps part of what shamanism does, John, is, is you propose it, um, oh, my my video just died, sorry. <laughs> um, it it increases that ability to have mind sight into another mind, right? And specifically, people are looking, you know, it was adaptive for hunter forager populations because it allowed them to have mind sight into the minds of of the animals that they hunted, right? And I realized that all these people who are playing out the rituals weren't hunting. Yeah, exactly. And weren't gathering and were completely divorced from the ecology in which those rituals had had function and meaning. So that was quite a lot, but but if I could summarize it really quickly here, I have a certain, I would like to ground the claim of what shamanism is exactly and how universal it is a little bit more tightly because I have a certain hesitation there. But then beyond that, if the claim is, and I, I, you know, I do think there's insight here that there's something that we need to recover from that, but I think that a lot of our attempts at recovery so far have missed the mark and have deluded people, and I think that in order to achieve a recovery that actually delivers, we need to understand how this roots down into those, you know, the four categories that evolve with play has really built into mindfulness movement nature and community right it, it has to connect us deeply on those levels um and that's where i, I think that there that that without those ecology of practices it's sort of unmoored and then like the doe martial arts it kind of drifts into the realm of let's yeah. bullshit ourselves with theology so that was quite a long rant. So uh, let's <laughs> come up for you, John.
1: Well, uh, give me a long time to reply then too. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, let me go maybe in reverse order. Well, no, let me start at the very beginning because um, I, I've been talking a lot lately in some of my videos uh, about, because uh, people are asking me, you know, flow states that I'm saying, the thing I discovered, I related this story to you guys before is when people were noticing in me way before I noticed changes that the Tai Chi was bringing in me. I think i've related that story and i've talked more and more about you know make sure make sure you're learning to flow in situations that generalize and in two ways i talk about permeating your life and percolating through the psyche and we've been talking about both of those get into find the kinds of flow that permeates your life the skills permeate your life and it percolates through the psyche and so one of the things that i think is missing like i like you said um, in the split between dough and jujitsu, is both of those right? I think the dough emphasizes too much the permeation, but it doesn't really do it because it doesn't do the percolation and 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 vice versa. So I think it's very important to when we when we're talking about all of these things, we keep that we keep that issue about transfer appropriate processing first and foremost, right? It, like. And we have to be careful because when we're talking about, you know, if you want to get better at baseball, then you don't need it to be transfer appropriate processing. That's why I've had a little bit of hesitancy around the sports analogies, but Nick is very gracious around that. So that's been very helpful. But ultimately what I want to know is, yeah, but I, and and that, and that was one of the things that really impressed me about Tai Chi. Like I said, I was doing it religiously for like three years. I was getting into flow state while I was in it. And that was wonderful. It changes what's happening. But when people came up to me and out of the blue said, what's happening to you? You're starting to be more you know, balanced in your argumentation. You're more flexible and open when you're in discussion. I was like, oh, crap. Somehow that permeated into these other areas of my life where I didn't think Tai Chi was at all relevant. So that permeation and the percolation is important. And, and then that goes towards your third point. I'll come back to the second point because I need the first two to, for the... Uh, which is the issue I also said in that episode... I don't believe people can be shamans today, precisely because if you remove shamanistic practice, we'll come back to what that might be, out of an ecology, uh, and I said, out of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, you're doing something ultimately fraudulent. And that's strong language, but I'm going to stand by it precisely because I think your critique is germane. It's like the dough, it's like, like, you know, you get removed from the ecology, right? These higher order practices, this is again my point, yes, they, they, you know, they, they have to be, in, they have to be in this internal, dot, the bottom up and the top down have to be going, right? The shamanism has to be meshed with, you know, extended trade network practices, hunting practices, foraging practices, you know, extended family conflict resolution practices. If you take shamanism out of all of that, you don't have shamanism anymore. You don't have shamanism. I mean, that sounds like a strong claim, but I'm going to stand by it. You, you don't have shamanism.
0: I would say you have LARPing
1: yeah well and, and but what you can do is but you yeah you have larping and, but then you can do some things like with jeep form where you try to get it back towards having more of a therapeutic impact and then it starts to become more shamanic so that brings me to to the the two things about the historical claim and then the anthropological claim the historical claim is like so the problem of course is and you're right and i hope i was clear and that i tried to present it as a plausible hypothesis. Not anything that I could say, this is undeniably the case. It was a massive plausibility argument about, well, what's the, and we do have, I think, pretty good archeological evidence going to about back about 13,000 years, but that's a long way from you know 25 or 30,000 years. We, like we found a shamanic kit, right? Now there we've got the uh, preserved things like that. Um, so is it just a just so story? In some sense it is, but it's a story that is made... So how do, you make sh- how do you try to make a just-so story more plausible? Well, can you map it onto current things that we can actually operationalize and test? Can you map it onto gesture, mindfulness, flow? So that's what I tried to do. That's how I tried to operationalize it. I tried to map shamanism into all of these specified cognitive processes for which we can do experimental work and extract experimental evidence. And then, and then I said, if you had those practices, that would be adaptive. Did you want to intervene, or can I make? Yeah, a- real quickly. Yeah.
0: That sounds like a, a justification without falsification, potentially.
1: A justification without falsification, in in, in which way? I mean, so
0: so you, if you can map it, it's easy to find patterns, right?
1: Oh no, but it could the be. The question falsified, is. But-
0: so yes. So tell me how you how you how where, where you're looking for falsification in that is my if question. You, I
1: guess you, so. There's there's competing theories out here about what caused the upper paleolithic transition, and mm-hmm. so one of them is the advent of right uh, of spoken language uh, of yeah. syntactic language. That so Mithra has proposed that. Mm-hmm. So that's a viable thing. And so now you you look in and but the problem is that proposal. So now you have inference to the best explanation. You put the theories into competition. That's all we ever have, right? Yeah, okay, cool. So, no, if his theory is right, then my theory is wrong. But yeah. what we found is we found archeological evidence of the hyphoid bone, right? Or is that the correct name of it? In the amphithole. It's the Hyoid 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 bone. Yeah, 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 right, which, and we found- I think the
0: GD. language, the language yeah. hypothesis is dead in the water. The, my, 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 my I would say that the better null hypothesis is there is no Upper Paleolithic transition. That you're looking at a long-term historical process, and there's no real uh, ignition point, and that it's actually fairly continuous across well, that, well, Okay,
1: so that's the second hypothesis. Yeah. All right. So I'm, pl- I, I'm trying to show you that I'm playing the game, right? the great game, uh, uh, the great game of inference to the best explanation. Yeah. Uh, the problem with it is, right, is that um, if it's it, what First of all, that doesn't track right? the explanation because generally incrementalism is supported by you know a slow progression in the technology and you don't see that. Secondly, you don't have any significant evidence of biological change in that period. So what's the nature of the incrementalism? It's neither cultural nor biological. So what is it you're pointing to in order to point at that? So now I could turn it around on you and say, that sounds to me like a just-so story. It sounds like it's just as incrementalism
0: uh i i think we could have a fun discussion on that i, I think i want to let you keep keep going to your point maybe we'll come back okay to
1: that. well so, i didn't have to convince you that's not i didn't have to yeah. convince you that i was right that wasn't yeah. what i was trying to do what i was trying to convince you was your your more important point was am i playing the game properly am yes. i playing the game of putting my hypothesis into theoretical debate with, yeah. with with competing hypotheses and that's my reply to you that's, okay, how, cool. that's how it's me showing. I'm not just doing the just-so story. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, you don't have to be convinced by that. You just have yeah. to be convinced that I'm playing fair. Yes, uh, that's be, all. That's yeah, all. Yeah,
0: yeah. absolutely.
1: Okay. The next point about the universalism. Now, this one is much more careful, and I've actually talked to Michael Winkleman about this in person. And, and that's what, when people press me on this, that's where I make the pluralist argument, which is between the universalist, right? The, the universalist, perennialist and, the, and the, the postmodern sort of relativist claim right, which is, depends, and, and, and again, and, you, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to be dodgy here, and I tried to show you that a few minutes ago, right, mm-hmm. is that, like, yeah, what do we mean by shamanism? And so what I mean by shamanism is an ecology of practices that I've tried to operationalize in terms of currently testable constructs that we know reliably afford the enhancement of insight and mind sight, etc. Is it plausible, that's the previous argument, that it could have existed at this time, Yes. Do we have some evidence for it? We have evidence for musical instruments. We have evidence for dancing. I think you can make a good case for the cave paintings being part of, of some kind of significant change, altered state of consciousness change, because how you have to get to them, the way the light plays off the rock, um, et cetera. Um, so, if you mean by shamanism, a, you know, a very, you know, ecologically specific set of metaphysical beliefs and claims, I don't, I don't get that. Which is why I tend to piss people off on the other side who believe everything but they say well that's not what the shamans would say and I typically say to them well I mean all you have to do is travel 50 kilometers in the Amazon and the shamans will be telling you something different right Um, so I don't believe that either this is what I meant earlier when when I say that I'm a non-literalist right I'm neither it's all symbolic or universal no it's specifically somehow propositionally true and I would put it to you that what we've been talking about here is not ultimately Uh, 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 analogy uh wait a second nick Uh, what i mean is typically analogy i mean this is fair to me analogy is characterized as figurative language and we've not been talking about that we've been not we've not been talking about the imaginary we've been talking about the imaginal it's not literal but it's also not fictional when you're getting the person to do running like an airplane taking off that's not fiction there's something actually happening there. Is it literally the case? No, because they'd be made out of aluminum and they're not, right? There's something going on there. What is, is that they're enacting something that participates in a reality that is not easily graspable by either literal or purely figurative language. And so what I'm saying here is, I, I, take, to, I take a non-literal response to the shamanistic metaphysics. I piss off the relativists, because I say, I don't believe it. I'm sorry. I want to understand any universal processes that can be presupposed by all of the metaphysics, and see if those can be functionally explained. That's what I'm trying to do. So maybe I wasn't careful enough. I tried to be, but I think I failed. I wasn't trying to claim that there's a category in the sense of a scientific essence. So that all shamans everywhere are the same way, are the same in which like gold is the same everywhere. I was trying to point to a set of cognitive processes that I think are reliably universal to make possible all the individual variants that we see cross-culturally. That's what I was trying to point to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a way to reframe the insight is that. Um... I've been reading Joseph Henrik's book uh, The Secret of our Success Have you read that? No no I highly recommend it. I think a conversation between you two would be extremely interesting but um essentially you know he talks a lot about cultural he's a cultural evolutionist right he talks about how how um, how how memes essentially compete within a Darwinian mind space yeah. right yeah. and that then that then they actually shape human biology and behavior directly, right? All so, yeah. One of the really beautiful ones that he points out is that um, human beings actually can't persistence hunt without, uh, without water containers. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. culturally selected um, evolutionary trait, the knowledge of and ability to, to produce water containers allows physiological adaption to chasing down game in yep. very uh, high temperatures, right? Um, with
1: fire and jaw shape and stuff like that. Yes, yeah,
0: yeah. So um, so one of the things that's really interesting about it is he, he talks about how, how you can kind of play out this, this sort of game of, of, of memes building over time together and producing a, a specific cultural adaptation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that a lot of this is blind and that we don't we can't rapidly or rationally apprehend it very well so within that model what I'm imagining is a sort of that at a certain point uh, you could say that uh, religious practices start to catalyze
2: mm-hmm.
0: an ability to um, to to afford insight right and that we see that whether you want to you, you know maybe sh- We can use shamanism as a catch-all category, right? Or we can say, hey, that's actually this practice of these specific people in Siberia. And I think that as an anthropologist, I get a little bit, you know, as a former anthropology student, I'm a little bit more persnickety about the language there than someone else might be. But I think what you're trying to do is capture a category thing of like, we know that lots and lots of cultures have entheogen practices right Mm -hmm. we know that lots and lots of practices have dance and animal mimicry practices this is something that uh that simon thacker talks about a lot it's super unique to human beings like lions don't pretend to be antelopes yes yes yes, right but a human being pretends to be all the animals and it's experience in in cultures all over the world we see the same thing and that this this set of things are are deeply interrelated and to connect this back because i think this is um I don't know maybe this is tangential but I think but hopefully it'll be interesting because you have a tai chi practice right yes. and I would categorize tai chi within the do martial arts right yeah. um, uh judo is not a do martial art uh, just for anyone who is confused if you're competing directly and it's about the competition that's much more of a jitsu right if mm-hmm. it's if it's about a spiritual transformation that's that's the way that's the do so one of the things that's occurred to me is often something like Tai Chi is taught in a manner that, that relies on very strange um, cues, right? Yeah. Very flowery spiritual language. Yeah. 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 Right. And one way to actually understand that is that these things were part of an ecology of religious practices within a specific language. Very much. Right. Very
1: much. I think that's, I think that's accurate.
0: And, um, and, and so it's, it's not that, you know, the, the the idea of the, oh man, I've just lost the word, but the the central point of the body, right? The way that that's described uh, in Tai Chi. Da-tian. The Dantian, right? The way that that might be described or how that's done might be wrapped in a language that's actually embedded in religious concepts that a, a Western audience yeah. doesn't have.
1: Totally, right public.
0: So this gets back to this, to go back to the, the shamanism thing, here's where we're, we're, if we treat the thing without understanding its its underlying essence and where it came from and we just try to propagate it somewhere else then there's a lot of information loss and if we if we sort of apply a faith-based model to how we act with it then when we fill in that information we have this this tremendous potential to propagate bullshit basically
1: yeah yeah so what I would say was, you know, I can just ju- oh, go ahead.
2: Nick, you, you have just very, front. very brief. No, no, no. What you listen this is <laughs> I'm in the audience on this, on this portion <laughs> of the discussion, but one thing it, it, it's simple and it's obvious, but, but it goes back to some of our prior conversation. And that is, you know, for, again, when we talk about analogy or whatever term we want going to use, but you know, the use of analogy, if the person is not familiar at a deep literal way with the experience those words are signaling, then you're, you're not gonna be able to transfer true understanding or, or meaning. And so, so much of what I talk about is the, the use of analogy to be effective, and this doesn't just have to be movement analogy, this is trying to, to, to impart meaning of any variety is what your reference point is, needs to be familiar, ideally deeply familiar at a, a physical sensory motor level to the person. And it obviously needs to be targeting the, the source of insight you'd like to generate in, inside of them. And so that just, that just resonates for me being very important that if you're trying to appropriate language uh, that's towards a task in a given ecology in one environment and bring it where you extract the ecology and the context altogether, you're extracting or you're, you're, you're removing that, that familiarity from the source, which is so central in my own experience to to creating analogies that actually work at a deep level.
1: Well, that's a perfect segue for me, Nick. That's that's part of my response to Rafe, which is, (laughs) yeah. And so, I mean, part of what it is, I mean, part of it, what I did is I also, I had training in both poetry and philosophy. So I was also reading the Taoist texts um, to try and more properly situate it. And I was getting them to resonate with each other. I was trying to be very Socratic about, oh, that, you know, my. And, you know, I don't really understand the text until I see it in the practice. And I don't really understand the practice until I see it in the text. So I was going back and forth like that. But what was I was relying on, I think is something that we've all been sort of pointing to, to which is, right. can I embody this? And if the metaphor doesn't work, fuck it. So, sorry, screw it, right? Drop it, Yeah. right? And then what, and I, and I was happy to draw, which I do when I teach my students to draw from cognitive science right, and say, blah, 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 here's another metaphor. And that's why, you know, uh, I think m- my teaching of people has been pretty successful, because I don't try to impose all of that flowery metaphysics. I'll use it occasionally, but I'll often use it in very conditional language. I'll, I'll say, you know, in the Chinese tradition, they talked about it this way, right, which is not like, right? it's different. And, and, and it's, so what I'm saying is, Yes, I don't want to, I'm not trying to deny cultural variation. I mean, that would be really, a, that's not what I, I mean, the whole awakening from the meaning crisis is how much variation there's even been within our culture. Um, so I'm very committed to that proposal. But I think we're all committed, and if not, you can interject. But I think we're all committed, though, about that we have, I mean, and this is Nick Winkelman's point about shamanism. Ultimately, we have the same bodies with the same evolutionary history, which dwarfs whatever period we've had you know, as an existing culture. The oldest existing culture we have probably goes back to the Upper Paleolithic transition, the indigenous culture in Australia. That's about as far back as we can go. And the, our evolutionary history is way older than that. Even as Homo sapiens, it's way older than that. So-
0: You said Nick Winkleman. Did you mean Mike Winkleman? Mike Winkleman, sorry. right.
1: <laughs> I meant, I'm oh, sorry, confused the name there. I meant Michael Michael Winkleman, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, thank you, Ray. So what I'm trying to say is, we, if you'll allow me a bit of a slogan, we can rely on the universality of our embodied phenomenology in order to afford more appropriate transfer. I think we have, to do, we have to do it carefully, but we can make use of the vertical. And that's what, so I was relying on that. And by trying to go back and forth between the text and the practice, can I see the text and the practice? Can I see the practice and the text? while all the time acknowledging that I wasn't gonna get it the way it was in China. That's Gadamer's notion of bridging of horizons. I'm trying to bridge my horizon. I'm not trying to pee a Chinese person in 11th century China, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous thing to claim, right? Can I get to the place where I have got enough conformity to that that I can exact it into my life in a way that is not bullshitty? That's the bridging of horizons. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to advocate. I'm not, I, I I don't think we can go back to the actual age. In fact, we can't. That's part of my argument. I don't think we can be, we can go back to the Socratic tradition. After Socrates is precisely after Socrates, not return to Socrates, right? We can't go back and we shouldn't be pretending we can. Um, but I also don't, I, I think that that there's enough of that to resist any sort of. Like, the problem with relativism is it, it degenerates into me now solipsism, right? That the only thing the only thing I can understand is my experience right here, right now, right? And, and nobody can talk to me, and I can't talk to anybody, and that's, real, that's ridiculous. So Standpoint
0: epistemology, are, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is I think there is a continuum between, you know, you know, completely solipsistic specious presence, you know, egocentrism, relativism, and, and and a kind of perennialism, and I think there th- there is a plausible place in between. That's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to shoot for epistemically, psychologically. So per-
0: perennialism, um, just for the audience, and for my own for myself, honestly. Perennialism is is the idea that sort of um, my understanding of perennialism is that specifically that's um, the perspective that ultimately all religious traditions collapse to the same sets of meanings.
1: Yes, yeah, they're saying they're saying the same thing, and they're so relevant- so- so it, yeah, it's sort of like uh, Huxley, uh, Aldous yeah. Huxley, the, the perennial philosophy, that's the prototypical example.
0: It seems like you're exacting that terminology a little bit wider there and sort of saying that like all practices collapse to the same set of meanings and that, that, that then we could have sort of equal access to any of them, right? And this well, is I, this is the mistake that we're making. Is, yeah. is that
1: a, a fair affair? Uh, um... So, so I, I, I try to, so the, the perennial, perennialism is a species of universalism. Right, here's the universal thing that applies, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm expanding it there, and and then usually it's also often called absolutism, which is also I think a, a misleading term. So I, I prefer the universalism or perennialism uh, versus versus a, a relativism or a parochialism, right? Kind of thing. Um, and so what I'm saying is, and this is why I constantly come back to the evolutionary analogy. I think it is plausible to have a universal theory of underlying processes, but then to be committed to a relativistic theory about the particular products. So evolution everywhere works according to these processes, but that doesn't mean the organisms are the same everywhere. In fact, what it predicts is the organisms will be, they will be contextually variant in a non-stable fashion. That's the whole point, right? Uh, and so I'm where I try to split the difference is to say, can we get to the universal processes and then can we frame them such that we can acknowledge and respect that they're going to generate all kinds of variations. That's what I was trying to do with the language. I I agree with that, the language of shamanism being problematic, right? But I didn't, I don't know what other term to replace it with. Every other term I thought of sounds worse. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Spirituality, you know, animistic spirituality that sounds wrong right you know, so. yeah
0: um, i i think that i don't necessarily think it needs to be replaced i think that just that that really um being very clear on the on the definition of shamanism that you're using right how it how it balances between these perspectives so you know this is you know in some sense my chance to to sort of uh get clarity on some of these things from you but I wanted to wrap it back into the beginning of this conversation um, to bring a little coherence. But essentially I would say that you know your project to me, you know, is is about the idea that we have perennial problems of inside generation and yeah. wisdom and yeah. virtue, how to orient and behave in the world. Right. And that within these traditions, shamanism. The Neoplatonic tradition, Buddhism, Christianity, etc. We actually have tool sets that are incredibly valuable that we have to recover. Um, but in some sense, all of these tool, all of these, all of these practices arose within ecologies that no longer exist, and so there are things about them that are no longer stable solutions to the yep. current context.
1: That's right. That's right. That's part of the, the problem.
0: And I think that the, the reason that you, you know, have, have gotten a lot of of the dialogue with me and and now Nick is that, uh, we are able to articulate and bring some of that, that process down into the body. I've been thinking a lot about the idea that, that what my project really is about is the embodiment of virtue.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that, Understanding virtue as something that's necessarily embodied is part of yes. the meaning of virtue that we've lost. We've lost the we've lost that virtue originally meant power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, to sum up, you know, I think that what, what's arising out of this conversation is this sense that we have to understand these spiritual traditions within a context of the broader ecology of life and practice that was associated with it. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And that it is not enough for us to ape the spirituality or, or profess the proposition of that spiritual worldview. But we have to actually create feedback systems that clearly show us when we're moving in the direction that we are aimed at. And those feedback systems have to integrate. I would, in your last conversation, you said they have to in, uh, they have to um, integrate movement and mindfulness. And I want to yeah. add, they have to integrate movement, mindfulness, nature, or the environment, and community. That if, yeah, we, if, if, that. if yeah. we do these things in isolation, simply thinking, okay, it's me, my body, and, and my mind, that that will not take us to the virtue that we're seeking. That the virtue that we're seeking has to situate us in relationship to our world and has to situate us in
1: relationship to community. I agree, and I, I mean, I, not to take anything away from you but I've been trying to get those other dimensions into the conversation. That's the whole, uh, well, that's the whole dialectic into Logos. Um and how do you get how do we get distributed cognition that's the community um and and how do we catch virtue from each other um and then and then situating it with respect to nature and the ecology that's why i'm talking to you guys um i'm also talking to you guys because i don't want to i like what you said i don't want to ape the past i want to exact it into the present and that's a very different process and the and that's why trying to get trying to get trying to take the best from the past and allow it to reformulate to get the best from what's emerging right here and now to address the perennial problems that's my project my pro- and sometimes people will say well you're ultimately not a neoplatonist and I'll go okay is it, 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 it I mean I don't mean to, I don't mean in a, in a, in a really facile sense but is this ultimately working is this is this reformulation of it so that it can be applied in people's lives now and in communities now in our situation now? Then that's that's for me the ultimate touchstone. If it like I keep like if it doesn't ultimately lead to the individual and collective cultivation of wisdom, then I don't care. It, like then I don't I, I ultimately don't care about it.
2: Yeah, I, I think just a, a couple observations um, in what's been said. First, John, you said something really interesting earlier, and that is that. Your, your, your students or colleagues or those around you um, after you had gotten into Tai Chi for an extended period of time had felt, and, and, and whether or not, you know, the the, the, cor- the correlation is causation, who knows, yeah, yeah. but felt that there was some proximity to your entrance into that physical form that had then expressed itself in your communicate, your, your communication, propositional, so on and so forth form, cognitive form. And Rafe, then I see what you're doing. and We've talked about it extensively about bringing a physical practice into nature in a community form, bringing these other ingredients together. You know, in the past, our physicality in a nature and community was was asked of us. It was demanded of us. We didn't choose to do that. We had to do that. Now we're in a position where we have choice. We have to... Consider it? Do I go to a gym? Do I do parkour? How will I regain my physicality? And I think the challenge in front of us is to the degree that us engaging in a physical, nature based community practice is critical for us to act out virtue with community members to start to bring a modern ritualization. Uh, of, of what typically is is of religious practices into this non-religious religion, the challenge I see in front of us, and Rafe, I think it's the, it's the challenge you're addressing head-on, and, and I think we're all part of that discussion: is how do we, how can people once again get called back to nature, get called back into, into community, in a mm-hmm. manner that doesn't feel disingenuous, that doesn't feel forced? Because if it feels forced, it, it's not sustainable. And that's, that's the real challenge I think the world has in front of us because we're spending more and more time in this non-physical medium. But we just spent you know almost two and a half hours talking about how this top-down physicality is so important for our, our, our knowledge acquisition and expression in this medium. But we're losing a huge ecology of engineering part of the solution for inside generation, which is my ability to feel what I'm inciting and then communicating back out to the world. There's no solutions in what I'm saying, but that's just tying some of the themes that, together as I listen to both of you.
1: I thought that was beautiful, man. I thought that was really good. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Um, all
0: right. Recently, uh, John was on uh, Clubhouse on Rebel Wisdom and they were talking about like, is this a place for Dialogos or oh, is this a place for, what is its function? And I think there was this proposal of like, can we all go do a practice and then come and share a description of a, like a, a place to dialogue about that practice. Yeah, I was using the courtyard metaphor. Yeah. and mm. I, I think, I, I haven't articulated it fully, but this is a kind of the challenge that I want to propose to uh, this this broader, community of people thinking about spirituality in this way or or meaning making or or um, sense making is something really beautiful is being generated by this ability to have conversations like this on zoom right Mm -hmm. it's a new technology it's Mm -hmm. and and we're we're adapting it and we're finding its functions but it has limitations Mm -hmm. and i think we need to I would invite people to think about how do we start getting some of those other things to, to, to work in parallel along with it. Right? Like you know, that's why I invited you, John, to come to Return to the Source, and that invitation is still open, and I'd love to see you guys there. And I don't want to turn this into too much of a, um, of a infomercial here, but I, you know, I really do think that we need events, and we need practices, and we need. Uh, communities of practice that take us uh into all of these elements right like mm-hmm. we have circling is wonderful and you know these other things but i think that um we need w- i want to see a community that can have these conversations and then also be able to ground them yeah i agree those shared cool. experiences yeah yeah and i absolutely. i want to see like i i have this sense that you know if we could get together a group like this and you know some of these other thinkers who are playing in this space and we could rough house and do parkour and sauna and and climb a waterfall and then sit down and have a chat around the campfire that what would be generated there would have a capacity for for transformation that is untapped as of yet i think you're right so I think that's a good place for us to to close the dialogue for today.
1: Yeah, I gotta get going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: This was incredible. Thank you guys for for yeah, spending touch, so much time.
1: Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, great Thank you. Both. For you. Yeah. Very much. Very much. Uh, should, uh, yeah. Let's do this again. Let's do Absolutely. this. Again.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. be in touch. We'll uh we'll be on Clubhouse on uh, uh, a week from today. So I'll see well, you. There we are. Adios.
2: Great. Okay,
0: thanks guys. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.